Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Outpost. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Bureau. It's Thursday, September 13th, and here's what's on the docket this week. A new analysis shows that the fundraising climate has gotten more and more friendly for biotech startups. Venture capitalist Bruce Booth joins us to explain what he learned when looking at the numbers. A front page story in the New York Times reignited the conversation over financial conflict of interest disclosures in medicine. We'll discuss the uproar and whether it's warranted. The medical device giant Medtronic hired an electronic musician to help it revamp a heart device to make the beeps less alarming to patients. Stats' Eric Budman joins us to talk about the unusual redesign. And finally, we've got a jam-packed lightning round for you this week. Among other topics, we'll cover a unicorn's IPO plans, a CRISPR ruling, and a pharma CEO channeling Martin Shkreli. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at STAT with a STAT Plus subscription. STAT Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to STAT Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. So we often talk about how the recent biotech boom has been great for investors and, in some cases, for patients. But what gets less attention is just how good it's been for biotech entrepreneurs. Bruce Booth, a venture capitalist at Atlas Venture, analyzed some data dating back to the financial crisis. He found that early stage companies are getting better terms and bigger valuations from their investors. So we spoke with Bruce over the phone earlier this week, and apologies in advance for the not-so-great quality of the audio. Bruce, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So for starters, can you tell us a little bit about what you learned in your look at how biotech deal terms have changed over the years? We looked at sort of valuation metrics, so sort of specifically things around, you know, pre-money valuations and such, and then um, a more nuanced look at the structure of the actual financings and the deal terms. And I think what was striking across sort of eight different metrics was that, as you might expect, in a, in a bull market like the one we've been in, the money is flowing and the terms have gotten, you know, much more entrepreneur-friendly, you know, over that period of time, especially in the last four or five years. And does what you're describing here match up with what you've experienced personally as a VC since the financial crisis? Uh, certainly. I mean, we've seen a much higher percent of uprounds, for instance, you know, as our companies have gone out to finance. I mean, I thought that was one of the most striking differences. I can remember post the um, financial crisis in 2009 and 10, you know, a flat round was the new up, and it was tough to raise money. And, you know, even companies making great strides were seeing modest down rounds. Um, but today, 83% of all the financings done this year have been up rounds, which is a strikingly high number and I think reflects the you know, relative optimism um, in the space today. So, Bruce, is this because biotech startups, by and large, are more likely to succeed now, or is it mostly just that there's so much money, you know, not all of it's smart, in the ecosystem these days? 
You know, I'd say it's probably there, there is some of both. So there is an abundance of capital today for sure. But I'd say the industry as a whole has gotten smarter in how we build and scale biotech companies. But if you look at the data, you could say that the pendulum was particularly um, pessimistic and negative in the beginning of that uh, that decade, the sort of 2009 to 2011 period. You know, no one wanted to do early stage biotech investing at that point. Um, you know, we were one of the, the rare few that stuck through that. Um, but today, the pendulum has clearly swung the other way. We have an abundance of capital um, and a reasonably constrained number of companies. And so that obviously leads to, you know, better deal terms all around. So one thing that caught my attention from your data was tranching. And that's when VCs tie their investments to company milestones instead of handing all the money over up front. Basically, it used to be really common in biotech, and now it's not. And I was curious, does that worry you? Does that inject risk on the VC side? I'd say it certainly puts more capital at risk in any given financing. And so I'd say the drop in tranching is particularly particularly apparent in later stages, so sort of Series Bs and beyond. If you look, many of them are not tranched, and you can see in the S1 filings of recent you know, offerings in 2018, you know, a lot of those had later stage financings that weren't tranched because you're not able to control that discipline titration of capital that you know, the majority of financings included a handful of years ago. So Bruce, as things have gotten more startup friendly, have they also gotten less VC friendly? No, I think it's a great time to be an investor. I mean, up rounds help, help investors, especially early stage investors, as much as, uh, you know, founders and such. You know, what I do think is an important part of the recent bull market has, of course, been the equity buyers in the public markets. And so long as the public markets remain an interesting place to build and scale young biotech companies, I think, you know, we're in a very bullish environment that, that you know, could likely continue. That said, if there was a significant pullback in the public markets, that's the biggest risk, is that you'd have private companies who've raised lots of money at high prices with nowhere to go. So, Bruce, is this a new normal that we should all be getting used to? Or do you think that biotech will cool off and return to the ways they were in the past? That's the, the million, if not billion-dollar question, Adam. I think there are reasons to believe that the, the structural environment for biotech has changed. You know, we're making real, pro, you know, real products. But, you know, as you called out in a prior post, the, the pipelines versus pipelines uh, discussion, you know, there's clearly um, been a lot more uh, over-enthusiasm, I'd say, for some of the stories that have, uh, that have gone public. So next up, we're going to talk about a flap that put one of the world's leading oncologists on the front page of the New York Times. Jose Paselga is chief medical officer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. In recent years, he's taken nearly $3.5 million in payments from companies that make drugs and other healthcare products. The payments took different forms. Some were for advising and consulting. In another case, Roche paid him because he had an ownership stake in a company it bought. Anyway, the reason this is all news is because Baselga did not disclose some of those conflicts of interest when he wrote articles for medical journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet. He also put a fairly positive spin on a Roche-sponsored clinical trial that was considered disappointing by others. Yeah, so the news story about all this was reported as a collaboration between The New York Times and the nonprofit news organization ProPublica, and it's already made waves. Baselga apologized. 
Memorial Sloan Kettering ordered staff to do a better job with such disclosures. And the article has sparked lots of conversation about disclosures and the impact of corporate money in medicine. So what do you guys think? Is all of the the hand-wringing over the Baselga case warranted? So let's establish kind of a baseline point. Yes, Baselga should have disclosed these financial ties. Those are the rules when you submit an article to one of these top medical journals. So I think my take on this is that, you know, absolutely Baselga should have been more forthcoming about these payments and, and, and filled out all of his disclosure forms. But on the other side, does this really matter? I mean, didn't we all know that Baselga is well compensated by industry? Yeah, and I, I think all these guys, you know, take a ton of industry money. A uh, breast cancer patient who blogs at Before You Consent made some smart points in a blog post kind of discussing the issue. The point made there was that there's nothing about this that's sort of unique to Baselga, uh, aside from kind of the high profile um failure to disclose. But these issues regarding conflict, bias, um, exist for for all of these doctors that collaborate with industry. Well, and I wonder, even from our position of writing these stories where we ask people about disclosures and then we put them in the story in parentheses, I remember one in which I was writing about a migraine therapy and I talked to all of these top migraine people and each and every single one had consulted for all of the relevant companies. So I included that in my story, but I wondered, if you're a reader what do you make of those disclosures? Like, do you do you leaven what you take from what they say in the story because they get paid by every company possible? Are they just like maximally conflicted in like the lattice work of medical capitalism and you just kind of roll your eyes? Like, I do wonder what, what the point we're trying to make is sometimes. Yeah, and, and I think the story was also sort of maximally positioned to make Baselga look bad. I mean, it was noted, you know, again, that a lot of the compensation, the millions of dollars in compensation that he got, a lot of that was just an ownership stake in a company that Roche acquired. And, you know, that company that he had the ownership stake in no longer exists. So, you know, maybe he shouldn't have needed to disclose that anyway. And by comparison, uh, Jing Liang, a CEO of a biotech startup, uh, pointed out on Twitter uh, that Baselga's salary at Memorial Sloan Kettering in 2017 was over $1.7 million. Um, so when you compare that to the $50,000 in consulting fees that he received over the past half decade, it's a very small chunk of the, the money that's coming in here. I think research has shown that even small gifts, uh, you know, things like lunches and, and, and dinners paid for by uh, pharmaceutical reps can have an impact on prescribing. But I think the idea that, that this is some huge chunk of his income uh, is, is an incorrect one. Another point that Matt Herper raised in Forbes is that the the journals themselves are not blameless here. In some cases, uh, with the Baselga stuff that he didn't disclose in his papers, that information was publicly available in the Sunshine Act database that lists what doctors get from companies that market drugs. And Matt had, I think, a reasonable forward-looking suggestion. If we really want to take this seriously, have a public database that includes all conflict of interest, regardless of whether the companies that pay them have drugs on the market or not, and then use it. And then we'll just know, and we can use that information to judge the opinions and statements by these doctors as we so see. So we are so surrounded by electronic noises that it can be very easy to not notice them at all. But there are certain beeps that really matter. Take a medical device, for example. You want the audio alerts to be attention-getting, but not too alarming. 
You also want different chimes to convey different information, but you also want them to be easy to learn and differentiate. Those were the considerations in play when the medical device giant Medtronic set about designing a new version of its heart monitor. This was a remote monitor for use in the home. Patients have the hardware implanted in their chests, which sends data about their heart rhythms to a plastic gadget that sits on the bedside and sends out alerts when necessary. So in an unusual consulting deal, Medtronic tasked an electronic musician named Yoko Sen with coming up with new tones for the heart monitor. Here today to tell us about it is stat reporter Eric Budman, who spent time with Sen to report out a great story about the redesign. Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So first, we're going to listen to the beeps emitted from the old version of Medtronic's heart monitor that's currently on the market. Eric, explain to us what's wrong with these beeps. That's a great question. And in fact, some patients who have these monitors weren't even aware that their monitors were emitting beeps in the first place. That said, I think Medtronic worried that they might be overly alarming or unclear. And Sen's desire was to make these beeps, if not comfortable, at least a little less uncomfortable. So now we're going to listen to the chimes that Yoko Sen came up with for the new version of the heart monitor. And to be clear, these are the options that she presented to Medtronic. They are not the final version. So, okay, could we just make it lower, a little shorter, or different tones? So, Eric, what was improved about those chimes over the old ones? Well, they might not sound super different from what you heard at the beginning, but there was actually a long three-month process or, or so that went into trying to figure out how to make those sounds better. And at first... Uh, Yoko wanted to try playing with the timbre, but that sort of proved impossible because you'd have to swap out the actual electronic component from the monitor. And so then she started playing with melody. She got together with a composer friend. They sat at the piano and she made all these sounds and he made all these sounds and they recorded all of them. And in the end, I think they lowered the frequencies or tried lowering the frequencies so that it might be a little more soothing and just tried slightly different melodies. They didn't want it to be too complicated so that non-musicians could still recognize it, but they also didn't want it to be aggravating like the original tones. So Eric, did Medtronic consult with or hire a musician to come up with the tones for the first iteration of their device? No, they didn't. They said this is, to their knowledge, uh, the first time that they're actually hiring an electronic musician to redesign some of the beeps. So Eric, your story frames this redesign of these chimes as kind of the latest in a trend of, of redesigning all aspects of healthcare to try to put the patient at the center of the experience. So what do you kind of see here as the driving force behind all these rethinkings? I mean, I think there is this idea that redesigning problems that we often don't even notice because they're so omnipresent can actually have a big effect on healthcare and in some cases even potentially save lives. So in a hospital setting, in the OR or the ICU, making sure that no one misses a beep and you know, misses an alarm can actually change whether a patient lives or dies. So finally, Eric, what's next for this new and improved heart monitor? 
Right now, it's still in development, and it still has some regulatory hurdles to jump through. And so it'll be a while until it actually hits the market and someone will actually hear Yoko Kaysen's beeps coming out of their bedside monitor. So lastly this week, we'll have another lightning round. Let's get started with a biotech unicorn that seems to be ready to go public. Damien, tell us about it. Yes, our long national nightmare is apparently nearly over because Moderna Therapeutics and its $7.5 billion private valuation are getting ready for an IPO, according to people familiar with the matter, which feels weird to say out loud on a podcast rather than in print. But basically the gist is... I was told by people who would know that uh, everybody's favorite biotech unicorn has recruited some bulge bracket banks and is in the early stages of the process of going public. So, Damien, what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Well, so the next step for Moderna is to have what are called test the waters meetings, which are exactly what you might think. They and their bankers go to investors and test the waters. They, They tell the story of the company and they explain the valuation that they're seeking, which I'm told is more than $10 billion. If the waters prove to be less than hospitable, that valuation might come down, the offering might get delayed, or worst case scenario, it could get canceled altogether. But from people I talk to, it sounds like there's a lot of receptivity uh, among the sort of Wall Street investor class for a Moderna IPO. And so, Damien, as a private company, Moderna has not had to share everything that's going on inside its walls. Once it goes public, they have to be a little bit more transparent, right? Very much so. So I think it's fair to say that, that one of the most looked forward to documents in recent biotech history is the Moderna Therapeutics S1. And that's the filing you have to make public when you have an IPO. And you basically have to bare your soul to the world because mom and pop investors can potentially buy your stock in the future. So if in fact this goes forward, we're going to learn a lot about what Moderna has been up to these past years. Next up, let's talk about how the drug industry got its new comic book villain this week. So there's a guy named Nirmal Moulier, and he's the CEO of a company called Nostrum Laboratories. And that company quadrupled the price of a generic liquid antibiotic used to treat bladder infections. And when asked about it by the Financial Times, Mr. Moulier defended it as his moral requirement. So a few things to keep in mind here. No one has ever heard of this guy or this company before, right? That's right. He's totally off the radar of everyone. In fact, we were trying to find some video of this guy, and there was virtually nothing online. The whole story sort of started with an article in the Financial Times by David Crow. You know, he quoted this guy saying that there was a, quote, moral requirement to raise the price of this drug. And so obviously that cute outrage, but it's worth remembering that, uh, Adam, as you mentioned, this is sort of a nothing company no one had ever heard of. And maybe more importantly, they're not even selling the drug right now. He, he raised the price as sort of a conceptual issue, but this isn't really like a literal gouging situation like people remember with the Martin Shkreli situation. I was also intrigued by the name of the company. Uh, again, this is called Nostrum Laboratories. And Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, defines the term Nostrum as, quote, a medicine, especially one that is not considered effective, prepared by an unqualified person. That's why this almost felt like a prank to me. Like there was this pantomime villain who comes in with this like plainly ridiculous statement that got even Stephen Ubel to, to speak out against it. And then they have a company name like that that feels like something that originated on some like snark Reddit board to where this I could be convinced that this was all some sort of like viral marketing campaign for the Bernie Sanders 2020 effort. Or this was all set up by the PBM middlemen. Always. Moving on, we had a pretty big legal patent decision in the CRISPR world this week. 
Yeah, and what may be finally the end of this seemingly never-ending fight over CRISPR patents, a federal appeals court sided with the Broad Institute, and that decision was unfavorable to the University of California. Yeah, I mean, and the the most concise, and I'm sure this will be somewhat inaccurate and offend someone, but the most concise definition of the fight that I could come up with, basically, is that the University of California figured out how to use CRISPR-Cas9 to edit bacteria. The Broad Institute later patented using it to edit more complicated cells that have uh, nuclei. The dispute was, is what the Broad did an obvious thing that anyone would have assumed to do based on University of California's discovery, or did it represent a real advance? And so what this appeals court decided is, yes, it did represent a real advance. And so now it seems like the CRISPR patent fight is over, in the U.S. at least. From a Wall Streeter business perspective, people kind of shrugged off this news, mainly because I think there was always an assumption that, you know, that the loser was going to pay the winner some small royalty fee, and then life would go on. And that's probably what's going to happen as we speak. Next up, let's talk about an effort to transform plastic tubes into a life-saving artificial liver. Adam, how did that go? didn't go really well, Rebecca. The company is called Vital Therapies. And yes, they had this sort of biomedical device that consisted of a bunch of plastic tubes that they thought would help uh, patients with liver failure live longer. Uh, They ran a big phase three study. And guess what? It didn't work. But that didn't come as a surprise to a great many people, right? No, exactly. And and that's that's kind of what's funny here is that, you know, they had previously run a big clinical trial and it also didn't work. And they do what lots of companies do who want to sort of continue living on is that they identified a patient subgroup where they thought they saw a signal of efficacy. And then they use that for the next phase three. And, you know, oftentimes or most often that doesn't work, as was the case with vital therapies. So speaking of digging through clinical trial results like those from Vital Therapies, uh, Adam, you have a webinar coming up, don't you, to uh, help folks who want to do that better? Oh, this is where we get to do the shameless promotional plug. I like that. So my colleague Sharon Begley and I will be having this webinar on September 25th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. And what we're going to do is we're going to help people sort of spot the uh, red flags in clinical trials that could kind of, you know, help you identify the problem spots, the ways companies try to spin data, or basically just generally hide bad news. And you can find more details about that webinar on statnews.com. And that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Epinato, Alyssa Ambrose, and Dom Smith, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a standing reminder that we would love to hear from you. Email us your feedback, your suggestions for future topics, future guests, really anything. You can send that to readoutloud at statnews.com, and we really appreciate it, so thank you. See you next week.